Good morning. <laughs> Welcome to Rising. We have a great show for you today. Really great. Totally terrific show. <laughs> Brianna, let's talk about it. Well, first up, Robbie, Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg has been making the rounds across corporate media as the Biden administration attempts damage control on political fallout from this month's derailment disaster in Ohio. Buttigieg told reporters on a call he would eventually visit East Palestine, quote, when the time is right, and even admitted to CBS News he had regrets about the administration's initial response. And I just have to ask, because it did take you a couple of days to respond publicly uh, or several days to respond publicly to this particular incident. Do you wish you would have spoken out sooner? Yes, I was uh, focused on just making sure that uh, our folks on the ground uh, were all set, but uh, could have spoken sooner about how strongly I felt uh, about this incident. And uh, that's a lesson learned for me. Then over on ABC's Good Morning America, Buttigieg had some stern words for the rail industry. There's another side to the story, which is making sure that we move forward on rail safety in this country. The NTSB, National Transportation Safety Board, is an independent body and they are independently doing their investigative work. But we don't have to wait for their final report to know that some things need to change. And so today, we are pushing forward a three-part drive on rail safety. Things that we're doing at the Department of Transportation to raise the bar. Things that we need help from Congress to do in order to hold rail companies accountable. And things that this industry needs to do differently. i got to tell you, ever since I came into this job, I have seen the power that multi-billion dollar railroad companies wield and they fight safety regulations tooth and nail that's got to change the future cannot be like the past and i am calling for that change to begin right away you're beginning saying and it doesn't end there Buttigieg also hit out against marco rubio after the senator from florida called for his resignation he accused rubio of getting too comfy with rail industry barons tweeting quote the facts don't lie the 2021 letter you signed was obviously drafted by railroad industry lobbyists it supports waivers that would reduce visual track inspections now will you vote to help us toughen rail safety accountability and fines or not yeah, it's interesting. So Buttigieg is completely right. Um, you know, a number of Congress members signed this letter. It was included John beneath a tweet um, asking for uh, basically lower standards for the kind of inspections that might have caught the fact that there were, you know, sparks shooting out from under this train for apparently 20 miles or so before the actual derailment. Fair enough. But when I listened to that Buttigieg clip, I was also struck by the interesting deference uh, he kept making to the NTSB, the National Train Safety Board, talking about how it's an independent organization. It's independent. We have to let them do what they want. So I thought to myself, is that actually him properly deferring to the authority of an independent body to conduct an investigation? Or is it a little bit of him also ducking responsibility? And when I looked into it, it became clear David Sirota covered this uh, over on the lever, I believe, and also on his um, you know, Twitter, Twitter page, that the NTSB actually recommended to Barack Obama back in 2014 that they adopt safety rules covering the exact kind of compounds that were involved in the derailment in Ohio. So the, in, the NTSB can do its job. At the same time, a year later, Obama regulators decided to side with lobbyists and ignore NTSB's suggestions, or demands, rather. So at the end of the day, if the NTSB doesn't actually have the authority to implement the kind of safety regulations that they would actually recommend, ultimately, I found some of his framing in that clip to defer to the NTSB, defer to the NTSB, mm -hmm. to be 
kicking the can of responsibility down the road in a similar sort of way to what Marco Rubio was doing as he's demanding action from Democrats, et cetera, et cetera, at the same time that he was part of the problem as well. Right. When, I mean, when government is functioning properly, regulatory agencies, authorities are not supposed to just craft new ro rules or, or, stop do it, or stop enforcing rules or change course. Congress is supposed to give them clear directions on what the new rules are supposed to be, and then they enforce them. I mean, this is something, this isn't unique to this industry whatsoever. This comes up in all sorts of areas. I've looked at it most closely in the, uh, the rules for higher education around expression yeah. and due process and things where you have aspects of the education department coming up with new rules, and then they get, then the the schools don't want to follow them because they don't know if they're law or not because Congress hasn't weighed in. Now, unfortunately, we have a reality where Congress doesn't weigh in on enough of this stuff anymore because Congress doesn't properly function, mm -hmm. but it leaves a lot of regulatory authorities actually in the lurch when they're kind of making up rules and it maybe exceeds their authority, which is not to say that more rules aren't necessarily needed. It's just the agency that's supposed to be doing that is the Congress, and they're not doing it. Well, sure. I mean, but in this case, the rules were probably, the recommendations were issued. The, Biden, the sorry, the Obama administration at the time declined to adopt them, and so this is this is my issue with this. Everybody is engaging in point scoring to a greater or yes. lesser degree in this situation. But there were things that happened during the Obama administration that led to this crisis. There were things that happened to the Trump administration, um, specifically choosing not to force the real industry to adopt the, the new technology on brakes. They're currently using these air brakes from like the first decade of the last century that uh, because they act sequentially down the car cause that slinky effect that forces derailments when the new brake electronic brake system that has all the cars stop at once electronically doesn't have that, you know, ricochet effect. Um, that was a Trump-era policy. So again, I, I'm, I'm just deeply skeptical of anybody's real investment in fixing the problem. If we get Democrats criticizing Republicans and Republicans criticizing Democrats, I trust people who are willing to offer a critical lens on the failures of their own party. Fundamentally, that I, it's it's the world is not that simplistic. Obviously, you have to parse what people are saying and look at their records and things like that. But I'm immediately suspicious of people in a situation like this who are pointing fingers that doesn't also reflect back on the people that are currently in leadership. Mm -hmm. The fact that Pete Buttigieg can kind of go through the morning shows with impunity and not be asked pretty embarrassing questions about what impact Joe Biden had on crushing this rail strike. When part of the demand of the workers in the context of the rail strike we were talking about at the end of last year was to have more staffing on these trains, was to have more capacity to do inspections on these trains, was to have days off so they weren't tired and exhausted and were able to actually yeah. check if everything on these on, trains, which on that front, clear, almost two miles long, was actually in I order. was actually reading a, an interesting report from um, uh, the director of research at the Brotherhood of Railroad Signalmen, which is a... a union for people who work mm -hmm. on the railway race, Christopher Hand, he was saying that they don't have enough time to check the um, the hot box detectors, the, the software that, or whatever, the device that detects whether the wheels are overheating, mm -hmm. which is exactly what happened in this case. The wheels overheated, and East Palestine got some like last minute warning that the wheels had overheated. The question why weren't why wasn't that why didn't that warning ha take place earlier? Um, was there some kind of malfunction? But so this, this is a union person saying they don't have enough time to do these inspections because they're doing too much government mandated training and 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 work of that kind, which is not which actually prevents them from doing the work that they need to do. 
Uh, okay, well, I listen to a lot of... That might be true. It is also true that they ha, the railway industry has been pushing to go from two-person man trains to one-person man trains, and that the rail industry workers would prefer if there were many more people able to actually staff the trains. Yeah, they probably prefer the end of they the were day, left alone to do their work. At the end of the day, the trains are 1.8 miles long. The, 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 the train that derailed was 1.8 miles long. There were three people on this train because there was a, a, a trainee, a conductor trainee. But generally speaking, you're looking at a situation or a train, how long does it take to, to walk about two miles? About 40 minutes? And you're, that's if you were just walking and not actually conducting an inspection and trying to be, have critical faculties at play. So people are being asked using this PSR, the, the, the primary complaint, this is the first time I'm hearing that I don't deny that, of course, I've got administrative things in my job that make my job difficult, everybody does. I have some skepticism that given that what we know about the breaks, what we know about the staffing, and what we know about union members have been saying for months now, years now, it's been three years they've been arguing around this contract, that the primary issue here is the fact that the, there is cost-cutting quarters by these train companies who don't want to pay people a living wage, don't want to let them have a, a break, partly because they have this PSR, precision railroad scheduling, that makes it so that they are able to make a lot of money by having incredibly tight schedules that don't allow for any kind of personnel changes. And until we get to the bottom of that, again, we're going to have to, we're going to have thousand, a thousand derailments a year, just like we've been having. And they're going to, I'm afraid that this is going to kind of sink back into the back of our minds because not every derailment is accompanied by, you know, a thousand foot plume of smoke and toxic chemicals that captures the public imagination. Yeah, well, make them pay for it. They should pay for all the damage they cause. I think that's the, the right thing to happen. And it, uh, companies that cause massive destruction or loss of life, they should pay for it. And that will hopefully incentive, uh, disincentivize future risky behavior, disincentivize the kind of cost-cutting, et cetera, the, the, the not following proper safety protocols. That will be the way to disincentivize for them from, from doing that. I'm out of curiosity. We've talked a little bit about the fact that there are these, uh, what is it, the, the, the statutory cap for damages in like $250,000, something that's very minuscule. Um, at the same time, we know that the damages from these kinds of cases often don't manifest for years, decades even. Um, the nature of toxic chemical exposure and carcinogens can be very far out, and that, that raises a huge causation barrier for litigants who are trying to prove that this incident caused their cancer. It's very, very difficult. And the reality is that as much as you and I both agree that the train companies should pay, historically the reason why behavior never changes is because they don't actually have to accommodate, they don't actually have to pay for the full cost of the damages that they've caused because the legal system advantages rich corporations because of their ability to have um, yeah, I, legal I support defense. changing the legal system to unlimit the liability. But it's not about limited liability. liability. It's about the legal system itself disadvantaging average people who are put in a situation where they, 20 years down the line, have to prove that their laryngeal cancer had anything to do with a toxic spill 20 years before. It's just a very difficult burden for them to meet. And moreover, they don't have the same resources to pursue that kind of litigation that the corporations do. I mean, that's the reality of the situation. We can both sit here and say the corporation should pay, but the corporations know in all likelihood they're not going to have to. I mean, they, they should pay for the cleanup costs associated right now. I don't know. But not I the, mean, I mean, that, that's well, the problem, Well, those things are difficult right? to prove. I mean, and there are, you know, there are people who claim they get sick later in life. It has to do with some kind of 
environmental harm, and you can't necessarily adjudicate those things. And, and I mean, that's, they're and hard that's to the do. problem. And that's Havana the problem. syndrome, et cetera, and over and I, over again. I, I don't think that when you look at communities like the ones uh, around Three, Isle, uh, Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania and a million other dumping sites uh, and toxic events around the world, the people who've been suffering and dying in Ecuador because of uh, the Chevron spill in the Amazon, that you can kind of say, oh, well, this is probably imaginary. Who knows what this, what's going on here? The reason why some of these are successful, we all know, watched and loved the Aaron Brockovich story. We've seen people in these communities know exactly what's happening to them. The, the question is whether the court system is ad adequately designed to force corporations to internalize the risk. And many people, including a law professor that I interviewed for an episode of my podcast that'll be coming out tomorrow, explain why just fundamentally it's not well suited to that task. So it raises the question about whether or not we should be raising the statutory uh, caps and making them statutory minimums for what these people have to pay out, because otherwise it's not clear to me that there's going to be enough of a penalty to get them to curb I mean, the behavior. downside of doing all that, though, I mean, raising their regulatory costs, their regulatory burden, that doesn't, that they pass those costs on to everyone else. They fire more people. They don't, I mean, they don't, they don't just eat that. I mean, people look. People work. People working in America need these jobs. They need. They've cut their staff by thirty percent in the last ten years. But they're going to cut it by even more right. the way we're headed. Right. So you can actually impose. Yeah. So you can beat up on the companies that provide working class people with the jobs they need, um, or you can, you know, try to find some way to structure the legal system so that when an egregious harm is perpetrated, the people who do it pay for it. So one of those ways to restructure the legal system that some people argue for is for to have a strict liability standard. And until, I believe, around the 80s with a Richard Posner decision, uh, it was the case that when you were transporting very hazardous materials, the law said, look, if you want to do a deal with an extremely risky behavior and profit off of extremely risky behavior, if something goes wrong, you are strictly liable, meaning that no matter what, if there was you know, something outside of your control, you know, whatever it is, you have to pay. What, he, what Richard Posner did was switch it into a negligence standard, which means that, hey, if a deer runs across the tracks, if something happened, you know, you have to prove that I was actively negligent in order to um, recoup anything from me, which, again, is, is another way in which the legal system again and again and again is changed so that all of the risk and burden go on the American people and on the public and never on these corporations. Because this line that seems to work on everybody is that corporations are the most vulnerable constituency in the world and we have to protect them at all costs or their jobs are going to go away. Meanwhile, Americans are dying as a consequence. And America didn't used to be this way. And frankly, these industries used to be thriving and more of a share of their profits used to go to the people that actually made them great. All right, we got to leave it there. We'll have more rising right after this. What's on your radar, Brianna? Well, Robbie, are we about to re-enter a Dickensian era of sending children down chimneys and coal mines without any regard to their safety? Well, Iowan children and the people who love them should be worried. A new bill out of the Hawkeye State would roll back child labor laws, allowing 14 to 17-year-olds to work in mining, meatpacking, demolition, operating guillotine shears, and other dangerous jobs. Unsurprisingly, the bill is backed by big business, perhaps eager to uh, avoid paying living wages to the adult workers who toil so that corporate bosses can take multi-million dollar payouts and buy back stock, boosting their own wealth in the process. Currently, Iowa laws prohibit minors from working dangerous jobs like working in slaughterhouses, meatpacking plants, mines, or in jobs that involve, you know, 
guillotine shears, paper balers, circular saws, and other precarious situations. But some conservatives in the state are pushing an exemption that would allow 14 to 17-year-olds to work those dangerous jobs if they're, quote, participating in work-based learning or a school or employer-administered work-related program. That's according to the Des Moines Register. Now, those seeking to take advantage of the exceptions must show that the children will be adequately supervised and trained on safety precautions. See if those 14-year-olds listen up. And that the pr proposed employment will not interfere with the health, well-being, or schooling of the minor enrolled in an, an approved program. Which might sound reasonable if you at all believe that asking employers nicely to ensure conditions are safe actually ensured safe conditions. And here's an interesting tell. The bill, which we're supposed to believe presents no risks to minors, for some reason includes a liability shield for businesses. So if a child is made sick or dead due to a company's negligence or their the child's own childish negligence, there is no civil recourse for their loved ones. A company could face up to $10,000 in statutory fines, a penance in the context of wrongful death suits. But even that could be waived by the Iowa Labor, Labor Commissioner. The bill is sponsored by Republican State Senator Jason Schultz and is backed by several of his fellow Republicans in the GOP-led House, as well as by business interest. And it's easy to see why they're so interested. Per State Senator Claire Kelsey, this is a sign that the labor market in Iowa is in big trouble. Businesses are so desperate to hire warm bodies, she says, that they want politicians to bend child labor laws and eliminate corporate liability. To be clear, one way to attract workers would be to pay them more. Rapid consolidation in the meatpacking industry over the last two decades has vastly diminished, and sorry, as well as vastly diminished union membership among workers, have contributed to wage decline. A 2022 study showed that workers were unwilling to accept meatpacking jobs due to low wages and harsh conditions without a $2.8 per hour wage premium added to the average $15 an hour salary. Health insurance, retirement benefits, and signing bonuses also would help retention, the study showed, but it seems like at least some plants see recruiting kids as a more lucrative path to take. Meatpacking is big business in Iowa, where immigrant labor is disproportionately used in the critical but taxing labor market there. Bernie Sanders famously dominated in the Iowa caucuses precisely because his canvassers went to meatpacking plants in the wee small hours of the morning when workers were actually changing shifts, and they employed translators who could help communicate his desire to provide health care guarantees and education security to laborers in East African languages like Amharic and in Spanish. But while a few years ago these workers voted for Bernie hoping to see legislative changes that would improve their standard of living— they're now seeing state legislators respond to labor deficits by trying to recruit their kids. And it's not just happening in Iowa. A Wisconsin company had to pay $1.5 million to the Department of Labor after it was found to have employed children in dangerous jobs in eight different states, including Kansas and Nebraska. 102 children were involved, and investigators learned that at least three children suffered injuries, including a chemical burn to the face, while sanitizing what are known as kill floors and other areas of slaughterhouses in the middle of the night. 
And although the company Packers, uh, the company, sorry, called Packer Sanitation was forced to pay the maximum civil penalty allowed under the Fair Labor Standards Act, that mere $1.5 million, it's worth asking, why is the maximum penalty capped at $1.5 million when the company reported $2.72 billion in revenue? Does the fact of the liability cap raise questions about regulatory capture? Are regulators designing fines in a way that meaningfully deter destructive behavior, or are they designing policy to create the appearance of sanctions that are really more like a performative slap on the wrist. Packers Sanitation Services is owned by the Blackstone Group, and the private equity firm uh, fund has collected hundreds of millions of dollars in dividends at the same time they've sent children to clean razor-sharp equipment used to dismember animals. Since Blackstone acquired the company in 2018, OSHA has investigated at least four amputations in three fatalities of PSSI employees, including a decapitation. As Lauren Gurley reported in the Washington Post, the implicated meat processing plants are operated by some of the country's most powerful meat and poultry producers, including JBS Foods, Tyson, and Cargill. These, those companies were not charged or fined in any of this. According to research cited by Gurley, child labor violations are up a whopping 37% between just 2021 and 2022. And the number of children working in hazardous occupations like meat packing and construction have spiked by 93% over the past seven years, apparently due to a historically tight labor market. Now, over 100 years ago, Upton Sinclair's novel, The Jungle, exposed the appalling, dangerous conditions in the meat packing industry. Over 100 years ago, he wrote, if we are the greatest nation the sun has ever shone upon, it would seem to be mainly because we have been able to goad our wage earnings, uh, earners to this pitch of frenzy. We live in a world 100 years later where a Republican Iowa legislator can attempt to pass a bill allowing child labor in meatpacking plants with impunity, a world where our politics are more consumed by the harm caused by say, African-American history lessons, than literal children being sent into a Dickensian nightmare. Won't somebody think of the children rings a little hollow coming from the voices of some conservative lawmakers when there's so little outrage about the effort to return our country to standards that seemed abominable in an era before <laughs> indoor plumbing and a right populism that would accept lobbying dollars from industries that are crushing bedrock American laborers is no populism at all. The food processing industry spent over $33 million on lobbying last year, and as I always point out, they target both Republicans and Democrats alike. That way, whoever wins a given race, the corporations always win. But Republicans have been the disproportionate beneficiaries here. These food processing groups lobby to keep taxes down and to squash potential legislation, including potential safety regulation, they lobby to thwart antitrust scrutiny that might try to break up anti-competitive business practices. Remember how Amazon purchased Whole Foods and what that's done to prices? And allow meatpacking mergers that have contributed to the sky-high prices at grocery stores. And if this whole conversation about limited liability and statutory penalty caps and regulatory capture sounds familiar, it's because, yes— it's the same issue we've been debating in the context of the East Palestine rail disaster, 
corporations are allowed to set the regulatory agenda, and they rig it to make sure they never have to pay enough to actually change their behavior when they wrong you. Trains keep running fast with these same brakes that were used back when Upton Sinclair was alive, with fewer workers to man those trains and workers who are running on fumes because, remember, Joe Biden just broke a rail strike. Win-win for them, lose-lose for the American worker. And I'll say it again, voting for RVD, DVR isn't going to change a thing until we hold the entire system accountable. Money will remain king and our democracy will remain a mere abstraction until we get money out of politics. Truly, if they can put our kids to work in meatpacking plants with impunity, I'm afraid we've already lost the plot. Oh, Brianna, 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 Brianna. Look, if I, I think work can be healthy for people of that age, and if they wanted, I'm not saying they should be forced into coal mines. If they want to work when they're not at school and their parents think it would be good for them and somebody wants to hire them, it's not my business or the government's to say no, is what I would say. I don't have any problem with that. That's, that's a pretty extreme position, Robbie, and I don't necessarily feel like I need to argue it because I just don't think that there's that many people that feel that way. I think that- That don't think most teenagers should have a summer job? I think most people don't think- People don't let their kids work anymore? Is that why they're all depressed and incapable? I think that most people believe that 14-year-olds shouldn't be working on meatpacking plants in the middle of the night cleaning I guillotines. I think that's hard job we're talking good about. For, I mean, you're, you're, you're hearkening back to an earlier era and, and saying things were always better then. No, no, no. Things, then. things were worse then. Kids it was horrible then. then. Kids were dying in factories back then. And we should not go back to If your to issue there. is the, fact, the, the employers, the factories, Need the, need the liability fix. Again, yes, again, if they harm people, if they're negligent, I do think they should pay. I've said that in all the, sec the discussions we've had on the railroads, um, but that, that doesn't, I mean, the, the work should be safe for adults and for kids. It, it should be. Kids, I don't have this, I don't like fetishize kids not working and just being at home on their smartphones all I don't day. Fetishize it kids. doesn't seem like it's better for them. That's, that's just a straw man, Robbie. The law already allows kids to work. It allows kids to work jobs that aren't especially dangerous. That's why I read all of those caveats off at the beginning. Jobs that are especially dangerous. Well, no, some, some, I mean, maybe some people like Glenn Greenwald would say the horror, and maybe Upton Sinclair would say the intrinsic visceral horror of what it means to work in a slaughterhouse and to consume animals is something that no human should be engaged in. I'm, I'm actually, frankly, open to that argument. But that seems to be a little bit at odds with their argument that people should be able to do whatever labor they can profit off of and, and free enterprise and they I'm can contract and do I'm not going to bring the government into... I mean, this is, what I'm, this is what I'm saying in all the... I mean, you know, you bring up the... Uh, the curriculum fights or the or the gender-affirming care or all that stuff we talk about. Again, I don't think it's the government's... If, if it's what the family is fine with and the kid's fine with and some third party is fine with, I don't think it's the government's business. I don't care. I say that for all that stuff and I say that for this stuff right. too. I, I, I appreciate your position. The natural consequence of that is to basically not have any labor laws whatsoever, to say that people can agree to engage in whatever contractual labor relationship and that an employer has no obligations, that there should be no... I didn't uh, say the employer should have no obligations. I, you should I mean, be able to, again, sue to right harms that I have no problem with. Look, I, I respect your position that you think that there is no job too dangerous for a 14-year-old. The uh, okay, Iowa Now who's strawmanning who? That's literally the law, Robbie. 
That's literally the law to let 14 to 17 year olds what do you allow extremely someone, dangerous. Allowing someone to do something is not the same thing as endorsing or saying it's a good idea. I just don't think it's any business of the government's. Okay, so it has been historically the business of the government because communities have come together and said that it is wrong and exploitative for young kids to be working certain kinds of jobs. That has been the standard in the Iowa law and most laws across the country for over, you know, you know, for decades and probably close to a century. We feel like as a community that we like to have certain kinds of laws that express our values. If your value is that you think it's appropriate for um, kids to work in these conditions, that's fine. But people have been outraged over this law because the broader American mentality is not that kids just, should be dismembering animals in the middle of the night. I'm not, a, I'm not on board the with night. this new thinking that kids are not adults until they're like 35. And we see and we see the effects. They're miserable. We see their self-professed mental kids health will, rights. I'm sorry. Your argument is that kids will I mean, be... We've delayed adulthood until... Your argument is that 14-year-olds will be happier if they get to work in meatpacking plants. They might learn something. They might build... I mean, this, look, this is, this is a conservative way of thinking, but it has been a way of thinking. In meatpacking plants. And... And, and coal mines. I mean, if that's what's available, I'm, I don't know that that's the best thing for them to be doing. But again, it's not any of my business. I, if I had a kid that age, I could work it out with them and whatever I thought was best. And so can <laughs> families out there. I trust the families. I don't trust the government. Uh, all right. <laughs> well, we'll see. Uh, that's my take. That's Brianna's take. We'll see what people think. All right. We'll have more rising for you right after this. Don Lemon is back on CNN this morning. He tweeted, I appreciate the opportunity to be back on CNN today to my network, my colleagues, and our incredible audience. I am sorry. I've heard you. I'm learning from you, and I'm committed to doing better. See you soon. According to a report from the Daily Mail, female staffers at CNN have threatened to quit if Lemon isn't fired for his recent comments on women. Though, take that with a grain of salt. The report cites an unnamed source. You know how I feel about those. Um, so he's back. He's back, which you know is which what, is fine. He should be back. Yeah. Like I don't like. We're, it's funny. We talked about it because it's funny. I, it's not the gravest sin in the world. I don't think he needs therapy or training or to have to apologize every day for the rest of life. Like, in turning this into a bigger deal, look, they're going to make me defend him eventually. So I'm going to be like, okay, we don't have to rake him over the coals. It was just a really stupid thing to see, that he said. Maybe it reflects things that he thinks that are also bad, I don't know, and he's apologized and we can move on. Uh, I mean, the problem is, Robbie, that we do know. We do know that it reflects things that are bad, because why else would anybody say such a crazy thing? The, the problem isn't that it's, it's, he's gonna cause harm to some community. The problem isn't that he's like gonna do violence in the world or that his words do violence. It really isn't that big a deal in the grand scheme of things. But I think what's so like troubling about it is that it's the kind of statement that does go to the core of how you're seeing mm -hmm. your colleagues and seeing women. And it's not a fireable offense, but it, it, it is a really awkward opinion to hold by someone who's in the opinion business and whose job relies on them having the public trust in that way. So it's, it's awkward. I mean, I, I think if he worked in like, you know, retail or at a law firm or something, nobody would really care about this at all. And frankly, it wouldn't be at all relevant to his job. I mean, he works in the field of opinion having yes. that's a different so those of us who do are held to a higher standard fair yeah enough. but uh but yeah i don't know it just seems like i mean it's it's like what if what if you found out that i you know virulently hated italians or i thought italians were an, an inferior group i probably wouldn't care and that you much know, you have to come into work every day and i'm muttering out of my mouth about this <laughs> cocktail lasagna like i mean is it gonna hurt our work 
working relationship, Robbie? I can't imagine caring, honestly. <laughs> I, mean, I just can't. <laughs> but yesterday, The Daily Wire's Candace Owens defended Don Lemon's comments about Nikki Haley not being in her prime on her show, saying Don Lemon's comments simply made sense. Let's watch. People are going to force me to actually defend Don Lemon for saying something that simply made sense. People are outraged. Don Lemon might lose his job. In fact, they're going to now make him take uh, diversity and inclusion courses. He's facing all of this pressure because he's clearly sexist, right? Don Lemon is clearly sexist because he made a remark about Nikki Haley not being in her prime. I'm sorry, what was wrong with what Don Lemon just said? Is it the part that it happens to be true. <laughs> it's not allowed at CNN. Why is everybody acting so offended by the fact that he basically said water is wet? Why do people keep being perpetually offended when we acknowledge that as you age, you are no longer in your prime? The girls sitting beside him, and I'm calling them girls because they're acting like little teenage girls. Oh my God, prime, what are you, what are you saying? You're hurting my feelings. Women are in the workplace so that we can cry and be upset and not be able to understand a basic biological fact. Like, only women can give birth. CNN people. Ah! Does she really not understand? It's, yeah, it, right, it, it is true. Yeah, the, the offensive part was not saying that 50 year old Haley women is beyond that birthing <laughs> age. That was, that is true. That was not the offensive That's part. The offensive part was implying that because she is not no longer fertile, fertile. she could be president in the same way that Joe Biden is perhaps too mentally old, too old, or we're worried about his mental condition because he's so old in order to be president. That was the offensive part. Correct. Because she's not that. She's Correct. not. She's not. We are not concerned about senility and et cetera. Correct. And and her and Don Lemon's two <laughs> colleagues the, did not whine and complain and act like little girls. One of them didn't on say the anything. Saw, yeah. And the other one, very in a very measured way, pointed out the logical error that Don Lemon was making. And it, the logical error that Candace Owens is also making. So maybe if Candace Owens had listened instead of fine-tuning her teenage girl imitation, she would have heard that the issue was, in fact, the only thing the, the other colleague, his colleague said was, wait, she's in her prime, past her prime for what? Having kids? Which was all she needed to say. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's such an int it's bizarre take. I mean, we were talking a little bit before about how Candace Owens can sometimes expose overreaches in liberalism and make some good points and be kind of sharp. She had a really kind of, I think, compelling moment in one of these congressional hearings where I think liberals who were too quick to want to dunk on her, you know, made too broad a claim about what her position was and it allowed her to grandstand and come out mm -hmm. on top. This, this I think, was just not one of those moments. And again, she opened by saying, you're going to force me to defend Don Lemon. Truly, truly nobody forced her. Well, I agree he doesn't need to go to uh, I mean, she wants to push back against political correctness or sure. asserting that everyone has to say things that are 100% inoffensive and accurate all the time, which I think that's, that's fine. It's also not going to help. Um, Don Lemon, what did we decide he was to 56 years old? He's not going to relearn some like attitude about Women, like, if you don't get it at this point, I, he's not going to get it. So I think that there's, if you say his attitudes reflect, mm -hmm. like, broader attitudes in the world, and this is how people think, and, you know, it's fine for him to be on the show because he reflects the positions in America. Fine, keep him on the show. It's fine. But doing this, like, pageantry where he goes to his little re-education camp in the HR part of the building, and we're all supposed to pretend he's going to pop out a new, more understanding person, it, I agree with that. It's a, it's a silly fiction. And if there's going to be internal furor over Don Lemon, it should be over his 
journalistic norms that he practices. 100%. Yeah. Well, Owens continued her defense of Lemon by pondering if conservatives are accidentally becoming what they hate. Let's take a look. They could have offered back to him, okay, yeah, she's not in her physical and biological prime, but at least she's 30 to 40 years younger than all of the other candidates. And he could have said yes. But instead, everybody cried. Everybody clutched their pearls and said, no, we want a world where we pretend that as we get older, we are advancing toward our primes. What is it? Everybody's crying. And here's the best part about the conservatives that are taking the bait on this. What if Trump had said that? If Trump had been out there and he said, well, Hillary Clinton's not in her prime, that's not, that's not a good Trump person. Well, you know, Hillary Clinton, she's not in her prime. That's all I could say. She's not in her prime. That's all I'm going to say. We would have been like, ah, ha, 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 So true, Mr. President, because it's so true. And that's what we liked about Trump, his ability to just tell us the truth. Now, all of a sudden, Don Lemon says it, and we're pretending that we need to be hysterical and crying about it. Give me a break. This is going into the category of me wondering whether or not conservatives are accidentally becoming what they hate, right? Are we becoming the snowflakes? But Hillary Clinton is old in the way that Joe Biden is and not in the way that Nikki Haley is. Hillary Clinton is 25 years older than Nikki Haley. So again, I, you know, and there were arguments, by the way, when she was running, she had that moment where she kind of fainted down when she was touring um, the 9-11 Memorial. Concerns. I don't think it was... It wasn't that, you know, wasn't physical, that serious. And, and certainly young people can have health concerns. John Fetterman is a much younger man and he's going yeah. through health concerns. So yeah. it, it's not about the strict chronological age. But... Even for a politician, if you think about what the obligations of a politician are, some of them are kind of physical. It's a demanding job. Being president is a demanding job. Um, some of them are mental. You know, then the amount of travel is very exhausting. Ethical and all these other kinds of things. So to say that to say that there is a relationship between being in your prime and age is of course true, but being fifty-one. <laughs> Both mentally, physically, absent any other like you know person-specific non-chronological ailment, you're quite literally in your prime. Mm -hmm. Professionally, when people earn the most money, when they peak, when they, you know, in the in the 15 years before retirement, you are quite literally in your professional, cognitive, and physical prime. So it just doesn't make sense. The interesting thing to contemplate is if Trump had made this derisive remark about Nikki Haley, mm -hmm. which. Uh, conservative Trump's supporter fans would not have cared about in the slightest. They would have, in fact, cheered him on, and CNN would have had wall-to-wall -wall <laughs> coverage of the, of the hater of women-in-chief, yeah. including on Don Lemon's show. It's true. I mean, I will say this. <laughs> Democrats have been hypocritical about some of these things. When Republican, you know, when people go after Republican women, there was a comment that was made on, um, I think, on Joy Ann Reid's show, uh, by a commentator who said something about Lauren Boebert looking like she wasn't had an OnlyFans. Only right, we talked about and that. And Julian Reed sits there and just kind of chuckles through it, and nobody pushes back. And I, and I think that's wrong, to be honest. Yeah. You lose credibility if you do those kinds of things. But, you know, on it's the other Barbella. hand, there is a lot of performative outrage by both sides. And I, and I do think that, you know, yeah. she's right. I, I, Republican Party has realized the value of identity politics and doing this kind of strong arming. And they have not just become the snowflakes. They've been the snowflakes because everyone is selectively a snowflake when they think it's going to score them points in the media. And that's all any of this is about. Yeah. Yep. Well, thanks for reminding us of that clip. That was a disaster. <laughs> More rising right after this. Please stay with us. Bill Maher sat down with MSNBC chief legal correspondent Ari Melber and podcast host Sarah Isker to discuss the problems with capitalism and what could possibly fix or replace it. Let's watch.
I feel like a lot of the younger people feel like it's not working for them. And I, I know Bernie Sanders is coming up on our show in a couple of weeks. And Bernie's got a new book out about how you can't be mad at, cap, uh, mad at hating capitalism. But um, I don't know what, what replaces it or what, what are the fixes. Certainly, capitalism has never been perfect. I just want to know if there's something better. I mean, I know a lot of the younger people think it's socialism, but that may be because they don't remember when socialism was tried. And also the fact that we all already have in our, in our economy quite a bit of socialism. We are a hybrid economy. Would we at least agree with that? Yes. A little hybrid. I think that when, we say, when we say capitalism in America, a lot of times what we're just referring to is this current deregulated super pro-bank or pro-1% set of rules. So you can come up with the examples like, a lot of regular people pay a lot more taxes than billionaires. That's obviously totally nuts. Or the way that homeownership and college are four or five times as expensive in adjusted dollars today than they were a generation ago. So that It was a really good conversation. I encourage people to watch all of it. What, what, what I thought was so, I think, refreshing almost about how Bill Maher introduced the subject is that even though he's very kind of hostile to the idea of socialism, et cetera, he made some important admissions right up top, that we have a hybrid society, that there already are these socialistic as aspects of our society, many of which are the most popular parts of government programs like Social, Secu Social Security and Medicare. And what Ari comes back with is, yeah, and basically, I don't have all the solutions in the world for what it means to transition to socialism. And me personally, I don't know how useful those terms are in a context like this. But Ari points out we could have more. And he talks about lower health care costs in other countries where they pay less for health care for a better quality of care. He talks about the reality of young people not being able to afford homes, how the millennial generation, our generation, is the first to fare worse than its parents, the fact of um, uh, these you know, venture capital funds and banks buying up all of this empty property, especially during COVID and driving up housing costs, all of these kind of structural things and the way that the system has been rigged, the laws have been rigged rigged regulation has been captured in order to make life increasingly harder and more, frankly, um, rugged capitalist um, than it could be kind of having some of these more uh, socialist um, uh, policies that provide at least a basic social safety net for folks. Why do you think... I, this is a genuine question. You, you describe these policies as both popular and both socialist. I, I think... There can be a legitimate debate over whether socialist is the right way to describe a lot of the kind of welfare protections you think are. I, I mean, socialism is almost by design a difficult thing to even define. It's defined so many different ways. Um, it, like it, I mean, in its actual implication, right over the 20th century, became synonymous with a kind of political uh, repression, not democratic societies. Well, it it and, was very purposefully and propagandistically, I got to say. Framed that way. Well, by the, the people in power called themselves socialist well, or um, communist or redistributionist. Americans went around toppling any government that democratically elected socialist leadership at the same time that they despotically went around doing world building and imperialism under the name of capitalism and never called any of the consequences of that behavior capitalist never called any of the violent conflicts and oppression that happen all around the world in capitalist regimes evidence of what capitalism has wrought. It's it's blatantly and openly propagandistic. I mean, we learn that I mean, capitalism is the best when we come up through school. We never even have an opportunity to question what it means to design our system in different kinds of ways. 
Uh, that, but that's that's not what I'm asking. Sure. What, what I'm saying, why, you know, in framing that, because, I, like, I often hear that, you know, why can't we have, why can't it be more like it is in 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 you know Western Northern European Europe? Sure. Th those countries, yeah, social is working there, but they're. I mean, they have market economies. They don't have yeah, you and know, market socialism state is also ownership over that's, the. That's why I think it's Canada is just is is it ranks as a more economically free conservative organizations mm. rank Canada as having more economic freedom than the U.S. I think this because is a, they have less yeah. regulation. I think this is a really good point. The reason I, I I am a socialist and I think that socialism is good, but you don't have to put that to the side for a second. You say it's difficult to define socialism. I don't think it actually is, but it, it has become that because of all of the intentional and unintentional um, mischaracterization of what it means. What, when actual socialists are talking about it, the core principle is that there needs to be more democracy in the workplace. There needs to be more worker ownership over what's going on in their businesses. The idea that they should have that, that some kind of random board members that get these positions to get a, a little bit of a salary every year, to get these dividend payments, who maybe have no idea of how to run the business and have no relationship to it, should be the ones deciding whether to ship jobs overseas, whether to have massive layoffs, whether to do stock buybacks, versus whether to invest in the business in a way that would actually be beneficial to the people who depend on the business, to the communities that depend on a business, strikes a lot of people, if we think about it for a second, to be kind of absurd. Why have we structured our society in this way? Why don't workers have more rights over, over how the business that they contribute to uh, is, is run? Moreover, we want there to be, you know, to get rid of money in politics because what thwarts worker rights, what has really attacked um, union percentages over the last 50 years or so and driven down wages and made the gap between the rich and the poor so much bigger, is the fact that with all of the accumulated wealth, what people have done is basically buy our democracy, buy a regulatory state, buy off politicians. And so we don't really live in a democracy anymore. What Bernie always says is that we live in an oligarchy. He's not coming up with that. There was this Princeton study from 2014 that showed there was zero relationship between what the people wanted and what politicians were able, willing to pass. There's a direct relationship between what politicians are willing to pass and vote for and what their donor base actually wants. Look, I think it's fine to talk about what policies we can have to make people who lose out under capitalist systems have a softer landing or not be out on the streets or you know smooth the edges for the people at in society while still recognizing that market economies produce a globally a massive have produced a massive reduction in poverty over the last 200 years an unfathomable reduction in human suffering and misery all over the world yeah it's it's that's such an interesting argument to me to say we changed our system once from feudalism to capitalism, and it had all of these amazing economic benefits lifting so many people out of poverty. But we should never change it again. We well, I just said we should not that we should never change. We can talk about what to make it even better. Right. And to make it even better, many people argue that it's that the, the system that we have right now where we're smoothing out the edges, what it really is is we are creating just enough of an appearance of substantive equality and fairness that the overwhelming majority of the public who has a small fraction of the total wealth in the country despite producing all of the wealth in the country is pacified into believing that there can be no better alternative and that we just have to sit quiet and hold on to the little bits that we get. While we get our Netflix subscription, all we can afford a cell phone, you know, we can take ourselves out to dinner occasionally, and we're not supposed to ask I mean, those questions. things, though, that most people throughout all of human history would have 
could only have dreamed of having access to those things. So it's a little dismissive to say, oh, well, people have what? People actually have homes and ownership over things, and they're, not, they're starving well, in the, fewer numbers the, than ever before. The context of this conversation is that people, so many people don't have homes. We're moving backward. Capitalism is failing. The balance that existed for, let's say, the second half of Globally, the last century. Globally, we're not moving backward. The balance that existed for the second half of the last century is off. We're, each generation was getting better. We had better opportunities than our parents. We're an increasingly educated workforce. People had better, different, different kinds of job um, opportunities that didn't require them to toil and get personal harm in the same kinds of ways. Now we're backsliding. And so the question is, is this something, if this is something that can be fixed under capitalism, why is it that we're not seeing those kinds of changes? Why do we see that even someone like Bernie Sanders, who is just a social democrat, to your point, he's just a social democrat like Scandinavia, maybe even Canada. Right. You know, why is he being characterized on CNN after he wins Nevada as some kind of dictator per um, Chris Matthews is going to start decapitating people in Central Park? Literally, Chris Matthews had to apologize for calling Bernie Sanders a descendant of Holocaust, people, his entire family murdered in the Holocaust, brown shirts. And someone who was going to, you know, do an authoritarianism but, and murder people. But in I think that's part. because of using consciously using the word socialism, which many people associate, including people who escaped socialist regimes where there was widespread uh, political repression. Well, I think that's why it's so important to have these conversations. And like I said, this was a good one. Uh, authoritarianism can happen under any system, and we're experiencing a great deal of authoritarianism right now in America under capitalism. We're seeing it in the banning of books. We're seeing it in the banning of what people can wear and who people can associate with. And we're seeing it in the fact that, again, Americans are incredibly productive and hardworking people. But the products of our labor are being stolen by a very small group of elites. And we as a country, despite being majorities of 99% versus the 1%, despite having an ostensible democracy, can't even pass something as enormously popular as a wealth tax to try to claw back some of that wealth and prevent those elites from using that wealth to continue to buy our system and rig the laws in their favor. We're not seeing the planned starvation of half the population or the execution of everyone you wearing think, glasses wait, a, a wealth, or the a wealth installation tax? of telescreens in people's homes. I'm sorry, what are, but Robin, let's talk about what we're talking about. Are, is your argument that a wealth tax would lead to authoritarianism? No, I'm arguing that that's why people don't like the word socialism. Okay, but I, I'm not using so, the word socialism. I'm yeah. very purposeful. Well, I think Bernie has used the word socialism. Well, he's not in the room as far as I can tell, although I'd love to get him on the show. <laughs> so, I mean, the reality is people have been poisoned as to what capital, uh, socialism is, and nobody attributes all of the horrors. Every homeless person in America, that's capitalism. Every person who was evicted during the housing crisis in 2008, that's capitalism. The lack of regulation that caused all of those people, 30% of Americans lost their total savings in the 2008 financial crash, 40% for black Americans and some other groups, that was capitalism. But we don't brand things that way. So I appreciate that cap socialism has been branded poorly, and I'm happy to use neither of the word capitalism. Capitalism or socialism? I think capitalism took a good, uh, a good, uh, you know, be in the war of ideas, a beating over just those. I, I think lots of people blame yeah, capitalism. Yeah, I think that's I'm why not sure it's fair our generation so, but people certainly do. disproportionately thinks that capitalism is, sees uh, socialism as more favorable than previous generations. But if that word bothers you, no one is arguing for. I don't think bailing out big banks, by the way, at the the government taking our money and using that to bail out bankers is that's a. I mean, that's a downside of the mixed economy. I, under true capitalism, you should let 
the banks fail. You so the argument is... You should let the airlines fail. You should let all these companies... The argument that, is, when people are proposing specific policies, to not let them derail it about slogans or words or labels. Do you support having more democracy in the workplace? Do you support a wealth tax to bring the, the wealth of the 1% more in line to what it was in the middle part of the century where there was a lot more equality and a chicken and economic equality and a chicken in every pot and all those kinds of things. Do you support a, a democratic reform to get money out of politics? Are you willing to say you're going to withhold the, your vote for politicians on both sides of the aisle who refuse to stop taking corporate money? If your answer is yes to those things, then there's occasionally going to be a politician like Bernie Sanders who might describe themselves as a democratic socialist who I would encourage folks to pay attention to because those are the policies that are going to be advanced. We'll have more rising right after this. Stay tuned. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries sent a letter to his Democratic colleagues ripping Republicans for handing over footage from the January 6th insurrection to Fox News host Tucker Carlson. In the letter, Jeffries referred to GOP members as extreme MAGA Republicans and shared he and members of the Democratic caucus are in the process of confirming the nature of the video transfer, adding that it is a, quote, egregious security breach that endangers capital security. Others in liberal media are irate that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy granted access to the security footage only to Tucker Carlson. Those concerned raised questions about whether this was, in fact, a nonpartisan move, noting it, quote, could pose a danger and threat in terms of violence. Here's a little of the discussion on MSNBC. Let's watch. Fox News, Tucker Carlson have a track record of not handling such things in an honest, good faith effort. The other concern, of course, obviously, is the security concerns that arise from false conspiracy theories. We know they are dangerous. We know they lead to violence. I'm really struggling with this one, Robbie. Yeah. Is anyone just clearly stating, because I've read a number of articles now, what the nature of the security risk is? So, right, it's not clear. And, and by leaving it unclear, I think they want you to maybe presume that what what they by what the Democrats mean by security risk is that like people might know the layout of the Capitol or yeah. something, but that's obviously BS because people could take tours of the cat. Like the the interior of the Capitol is not some closely guarded state secret. Um, we've all visited before, so I think what they actually mean and what comes through at the end of that clip, the security threat is by people perhaps changing uh, their opinion or, or forming a different opinion about what the January 6th riot was like. Uh, based on a, a fear that maybe selectively the videos will be shown, and we see like, oh, look, it wasn't actually that bad in this hallway or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I can see a world. That's where what they're saying. I think there, there's a clip of a couple of Democrats like laughing or joking or something mm -hmm. as it's all unfolding. Maybe because they don't realize the threat yet. Maybe yeah. because they're already in a safe part of the building, and that's put forward. Or as, a oh, police or scared. a security guard. You know, speaking with the with the the rioters, the people who entered, and saying, "Oh, here's somebody's off." You oh, know, sure. Presenting it in a way that it's not like they're being over. You know, sure. But they, I they made it sound like the storming of the Bastille on well, CNN. Sure, but I, I would think that that would inert to the benefit of Democrats as well. This idea that, you know, Democrats have been pushing. I mean, not pushing, but talking a lot about whether or not the Capitol security should have some blame for not. Engaging with the crowd the way that they might have if it was a different have kind Democrat, of protesters. Have any letting Democrats people been saying in? That? Really? Democratic humans. I don't know about Democratic oh, electeds. Yeah. <laughs> Democratic electeds voted to increase no. capital security funding, but many people on the left have been asking questions from the beginning as to whether or not there was 
some identity of interest between the police officers and the protesters on that day. So here's, here's what Jamie Raskin says. He says, there's thousands of hours of footage that are out there already, but the reason all of it wasn't released is precisely because it lays out floor design. It lays out evacuation So he's routes. making the floor design argument. It, it lays out where the vice president went. It lays out where the senior members of Congress were evacuated and so on. So I hope Kevin McCarthy has planned for that. I, I don't buy that at all. It's the people's house. It's a government building people have had access to. Um, yeah, I, that just doesn't, that doesn't do it for me. Yeah, I mean, and I, Am I, I wanna, wrong? I don't know. I, don't know. I, I, I do think that much of the, the, the floor plans and things like that are public. You know, the, I guess it is not public. If there's a panic room where, they don't want to tell us about, fine. Yeah, I guess, but. It's, I guess it's not public <laughs> where they go within that public building when there is an emergency. And I can, I can appreciate why that would be a problem. I, I suppose it's also true that these things are kind of flexible and you would change a route depending on the nature of yeah. the crime. Uh, Hopefully the they came up with a new plan for how to handle this building in an emergency based on their manifest failures yeah. on January 6th. Also, if they, I mean, I'd be interested to know if they made a specific request, can you not show the footage mm -hmm. that discloses that specifically? And if Tucker Carlson and Fox News, you know, specifically responded, no, absolutely not. We're going to show where Mike Pence went. Then, you know, I think that that shows some bad faith there that gives the Democrats. Democrats were just footing. in control of the House. And I guess this footage, we didn't even know they, up until just recently when Kevin McCarthy became speaker because Republicans took the House, they could have released hours more footage to well, everyone and then redacted whatever part of it they think is I, I security think, risk. I think the reality is that it's mostly very, very boring. I mean, it's 40,000 yeah. plus hours of footage. What that means to me, what that says to me, obviously, since the rioting going for 40,000 hours. I know. I, hours, it took me a minute. I'm, you know how bad it, at math I'm at. But the riot was not. There's only 24 hours in a day. Well, what it is, how is that, we, it's different There's hallways. dozens and yes. dozens of cameras, I'm sure, all over the place. And, and so most of this footage is just going to be an empty hallway yeah. or a hallway with random people walking up and down it that doesn't tell us anything of anything. So I understand why you wouldn't want to just, for the sake of it, have to appoint someone to, with the task of reviewing all that information to release it to the public. I mean, I don't think that's the best use of uh, government resources, especially. I really think the fear being articulated here on, uh, on mainstream or progressive cable television is that it's going to make people think, because there's going to be so many empty hallways, so much footage of nothing bad happening they're going to they're going to it's going to make people think that it was le it was not a big deal and they don't want people to think that because they it, CNN was the January 6th network. It was, it was just been wall-to-wall -wall coverage of how this was the most scarring, horrifying event in American history and they don't want to contradict that narrative whatsoever. And again and I, to be clear, I covered the rally uh, turned into a riot. It was very bad. I think people shouldn't have smashed windows and gone in. I'm perfectly fine having them held accountable. I think it was, in fact, a very bad day, and I blame Trump for it. So I'm not, I'm not underplaying the seriousness of it whatsoever. Nobody accused me of that. Um, at the same time, for most Americans, I don't think it seemed like the most significant event ever. Um, hey, Robbie, I, I, I do think that it is embarrassing for Republicans. And it, I totally I, I agree. I think that there is an effort to distance themselves from it, I think that it continues to be an inconvenient reality. And it's oh, part of totally why, agree. you know, the Trumpian candidates didn't fare as well in midterms and why there is an appetite for someone like Ron DeSantis, who can be kind of Trump-ish without having the stink of that particular day yeah. on him. 
Who was not I, in the Capitol urinating on Nancy Pelosi's desk on the day of January 6th. Well, neither, neither was Trump, in all fairness. But, you know, I, I, I do, look, I can imagine a world where they try to use the footage to dispute specific accounts. Maybe, you know, there was, I remember there being some dialogue about AOC's being, you know, hiding in the bathroom mm -hmm. and her articulation of how f afraid she was and, oh, she wasn't really in that bathroom or she was in this building and that yeah. building and, and, you know, I can imagine some of that going on. But, but also probably it, there it are seems some... to me that that might not inert to the benefit of conservatives. I think they're, they're better well, off with this behind them. Well, okay, but whether that's true or not, look, I don't believe ev everything. You know, we know how much po political figures exaggerate their moments of, of value, their, their pathological need to say, oh, I was basically in, you know, a combat zone when I visited Iraq, when, no, I was completely safe, you, you know, who we're talking, those kinds sure. of claims. So it would not surprise me at all if, if political f uh, figures on both sides exaggerated or outright fabricated their heroism or their, their actions on January 6th. If there's video footage contradicting that, I would love to see it. I think it, sure. is, I think it is in the public's interest and the public has a, again I'm I'm for transparency I'm for accountability I'm not for classifying things and and holding things back from the American people I think people absolutely have the right and I would completely believe that uh, Democrats were, were some Democrats were not as scared or alarmed or terrified as they m made themselves out to be or that some Republicans were not behaving themselves with the perfect decorum they've later or, or, or were not leading a, a mob or something like that who knows? But it, I wouldn't put it past them, and I'd love to see. So it's totally something the American people should have access to, not just Fox, but everyone. Yeah, I... I Maybe I it's mean, better for Republicans if we don't, but I don't, I don't care about that. I just want to know. I want to know. I think look, it's worthwhile. I, I am open to there being legitimate concert, uh, security concerns. I would like them to be more clearly articulated. And it just this whole story to me just feels like not great for anybody. Yeah. Nobody, this isn't moving the needle for anybody. This is such a journalist kerfuffle, media mm -hmm. kerfuffle. It has nothing to do with the interest of the American people, just like all of those substantive one six stuff honestly had very little to do with the interest of the American people. And if I were Democrats, I don't know, this feels like they might be making more of a story given how boring these tapes are likely to be, that Democrats might be making more of a story than it needs to be. And, and I would like to see this energy being spent on, I don't know, East Palestine. What does that even mean? What does that mean? They Evacuation routes it. and things like that. Like, I, I can it's see the argument nice. for it, but they could be specifically Weak. asking for, you know, uh, that, that stuff, those tapes to be withheld and to see what Fox News and Tucker Carlson say about that request. So It makes me wonder if they're embarrassed about something that's in those tapes somewhere. Well, we'll see, we'll see shortly enough. All more right. Rising. More rising after this. On Tuesday, the Supreme Court heard arguments in a case that could change the internet as we know it. For nearly three decades, websites, including social media giants, have enjoyed protection from being sued, but that freedom hangs in the balance. The case, Gonzalez v. Google, was brought on by the family of American college student Nomi Gonzalez, who was killed in a 2015 ISIS attack in Paris. The Gonzalez's lawsuit against YouTube's parent company alleges Google aided ISIS because its algorithm helped the terrorist group recruit new members. 
Attorneys for the tech giant argued it is protected by Section 230, which is part of a 1996 law that shields internet companies like YouTube from being, from some liability for being sued from content posted by the users. Now, the nine justices hearing the case wrestled with both arguments. At one point, Justice Elena Kagan actually admitted to being confused, saying, do the nine members of the Supreme Court really know about these things, these things being tech issues? Uh, here to clarify what's going on in this case is my colleague at Reason Magazine, Elizabeth Nolan Brown. She's been following it, and she joins us this morning. Welcome, Elizabeth. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So I read a lot of the uh, the transcripts and the reaction to uh, to the oral arguments that went on yesterday. It seemed to me that Google had a really good day, that the anti-Google forces um, did not put together a very coherent argument. The, su the Supreme Court justices on all sides of the spectrum seemed to really not be buying what they were selling at all, but what was what was your reaction? Yeah, that was that was definitely my reaction too. And more importantly, perhaps it was of Eric Goldman's reaction. He's a First Amendment lawyer who is pretty much the number one expert in this stuff. And uh, he said that he came out of yesterday watching oral arguments, saying that he does not think that there are five votes for um, in favor of the plaintiff, and he is much more optimistic about Google winning the case now after seeing the arguments yesterday. So can you talk to us a little bit about you know, what's at stake? Because getting rid of Section 230 is something that has animated some on the right, some progressives. There's actually been some kind of bipartisan hostility to it. Broadly speaking, Democrats are angry with social media companies for, for you know, allowing too much content, allowing too much disinformation, want to hold them liable for the consequences of that. And Republicans say, well, if you're going to censor us all the time, if you're going to take down our content, then you don't deserve this tremendous liability protection you have. Um, I think both sides have not really thought through the consequences of suddenly uh, you know, yanking away this protection. So why don't you speak to those? Yeah, the consequences would be just huge and myriad. Um, some that, that follow directly from the implications in this case are, you know, anytime a video posted YouTube or a tweet or, or you know, anything on social media, a search result on Google um, could be said to influence someone to do something bad, whether that be something dramatic like a terrorist attack or whether that be, you know, they watched uh, videos of people eating junk food and they had an unhealthy weight or, you know, they um, are a teen who watched things about a dumb viral challenge and they did that. It would open up the floodgates of lawsuits from against social media companies and internet companies in general from people that that you know just for things that were tangentially related. Basically, saying anytime a user posts anything that could be caused, said to have caused any harm, someone could bring a lawsuit against that. And I think it's interesting that the justices yesterday, all uh, several of them mentioned this. Um, Kagan mentioned it. Kavanaugh mentioned it. Roberts mentioned it. So across across liberal conservative lines too, you had people being like. Wouldn't this, you know, lawsuits would be nonstop, said Kavanaugh. And that was, I think, a lot of the judges seemed to get that. Well, it didn't seem to be necessarily unanimous. Uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson asked whether, you know, she said, quote, that seems to me to be a very narrow scope of immunity that doesn't cover whether or not you're making recommendations or promoting or doing anything else. And she said that after uh, reading an interpretation of the statute. So one of the questions that has been raised, even by people who are defenders of Section 230, is whether or not there's a difference between saying that someone's liable for publishing the information versus saying someone's liable for promoting certain kinds of information in the way that publishers like the New York Times or any traditional news source do, saying the distinction is 
promoting different kinds of content over other kinds of content and making kind of editorial decisions that are different from saying, hey, I'm just Google, I'm hosting a website, I'm not responsible for what's happening here. And isn't the argument that's being made that some of these algorithmic decisions are so sophisticated and so purposeful that they ultimately end up going beyond saying Google is a host, YouTube is a host, and saying I'm actually now putting my thumb on the scale in a way that is meaningful and potentially meaningful in a way that raises the specter of liability? That is definitely the argument being made. I don't think it's persuasive. Um, that was, you know, what Google was arguing yesterday. And it did seem like at least some of the justices did not find it persuasive. Um, they talked a lot about whether or not this is a neutral algorithm. And that's, you know, algorithms are by definition not neutral, right? They promote certain kinds of content versus based on, you know, how much engagement it's getting based on how long people watch it for, things like that. But it wasn't like YouTube or Google was, you know, directly being like, we will promote ISIS videos. It was, it was, these videos would be promoted because of an algorithm that was neutral in the sense that it was, you know, content agnostic. Um, and this is one of the things they talked about yesterday too, was, you know, if it, someone compared it to, if you go into a bookstore and you say like, hey, I would like a book about birds. And someone says, oh, the books about birds are over there. And then for some reason, there was something, you know, um, you know, defamatory in the book about birds. I don't, can't imagine what, but just say, go with it for the stupid example. I'm saying, you know, you wouldn't hold the person who said, hey, the book's over there about this bird liable. And, and they argue that this is the same thing with algorithms. I mean, all it really does is, is direct people who are on the site to content that others created. It's not actually, you know, um, recommending that, endorsing the, the content of, of those videos. But listen, isn't that the fundamental question? And I'd be curious to know exactly how much of this came out um, in the oral arguments. The question is whether or not the algorithm is, in fact, value or content neutral, the argument that's been made in the past is that it in fact directs people to more high conflict antagonistic content, which tends to be a lot of you know, hateful content. Many people have experienced what it's like to look to click on one kind of video and be very quickly funneled to the kinds of content creators, I'm gonna avoid naming, you know, names, that tend to um, spend time attacking other groups of people who tend to be kind of, you know, more divisive in their rhetoric. The, the tendency isn't just to funnel you toward cat videos, but quite the opposite. And so in your analogy, it might be going into a bookstore and having all of the books on the front of the store and on the front of the shelves being, how to murder, how to get rid of a body, you know, how to start a cult, how to, you know, abuse your wife and putting all of the, let's say, healthier, socially more adaptive books on, on the, in the back of the room. And if that were the case, I think the question society is dealing with is whether that bookstore should, even in those circumstances, be liable. Well, yeah, I mean, that bookstore would still be within its First Amendment rights to do that, though, which is which is one thing to keep in mind, even if we would wish that the bookstore wouldn't do that it still would be allowed to and not be breaking any laws. Um, I think the thing also to remember is, you know, these algorithms on social media, they're not deliberately sorting for any sort of content. They're deliberately sorting for engagement. And if people happen to be more engaged in things that are controversial or sometimes hateful or sometimes misleading, it's sorting for that. It's not necessary. So it's, it's really us that are driving the algorithms um, in, in a way. Um, this has been a big question in the courts, and, and so far courts have come down on the side that no algorithms do not change the Section 230 equation. So just because there's algorithm recommendations, that doesn't take 230 away. Um, obviously, that's what this, this case is about. 
I think one other thing that's really interesting and important to bring up, though, is that Section 230 also protects Internet users. That's specifically in there. It's not just the tech companies. It's the users. So if we got rid of Section 230 or if it was amended in some way, it could have bad results for social media users as well. And this was talked a little bit during about during oral arguments yesterday, too. Um, you know, Amy Comey Barrett said, I think your position is, is leading to the to the argument that retweets or likes or someone saying, check this out. Your the logic, of your position would be that Section 230 would not protect in that situation either. Correct. And they said, yes. So so we see the logical conclusion. This could be something like if you retweet something and someone says that that caused emotional distress or that was defamatory or, or that was for some reason otherwise, you know, um, actionable in court, someone could be held liable for that without Section 230 as well. So it's not just tech companies that are being protected. Yeah, it was actually, it was nice to see the justices, uh, they really did grapple with that stuff. I, I, I was yeah. surprised because I've bashed, uh, you know, the members of Congress before when they haul the tech executives to testify and it's clear they don't have no idea, you know, like what a, what a Facebook group is. Um, but the, the justices, or at least they've been briefed on it pretty well because they seem to understand an algorithm, right, they talked about tweets and retweets. Um, they, despite you know Kagan's comment that what, what do they know? They they were actually they were certainly more informed than Congress um, on the matter. Yeah, that was probably the best quote from yesterday. Uh, we are not like the nine greatest <laughs> experts on the internet is the direct quote. But uh, you know they were willing to admit that, which is at least better than Congress. They were willing to admit that and ask questions that sort of um, reflected at least some humility too, which is like you said, much different than members of Congress who tend to act like they are the greatest experts on the internet. Well, we've got uh, oral arguments on another, a very similar case coming up today, I believe, right? And that case involves Twitter, is that correct? Yeah, this one is the same sort of case. Um, it's someone who's, who's a victim of a terrorist attack. Their family is suing Twitter, and also Google and Facebook were, were in the lower courts on this case, too, um, saying that because they failed, even though Twitter does not allow ISIS content, but because it failed to remove all ISIS content, you know, sometimes it slips through the cracks, that Twitter is still guilty of uh, violating the Anti-Terrorism Act and it's guilty of aiding and abetting ISIS. So very, very similar circumstances to the mm -hmm. one yesterday, except this one doesn't um, implicate Section 230. Yeah, very interesting. Well, we will be following that. Thank you so much for joining us, Liz. Thank you. And we'll have more Rising right after this. This was President Joe Biden's message about autocrats that he gave when speaking in Warsaw, Poland yesterday. We're seeing again today what the people of Poland and the people across Europe saw for decades. Appetites of the autocrat cannot be appeased. They must be opposed. Autocrats only understand one word. No, no, no. No, you will not take my country. No, you will not take my freedom. No, you will not take my future. And I'll repeat tonight what I said last year in the same place. A dictator bent on rebuilding an empire will never be able to ease the people's love of liberty. Brutality will never grind down the will of the free. And Ukraine, Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia. Never. So it was a classic rah-rah freedom kind of speech, um, you know, at a time where Europe is threatened by what Russia is doing. But, you know, the question becomes that was pretty uh, heated rhetoric. That was very uh, serious. You know, we oppose what Vladimir Putin want and what 
he's doing, we being our government, and obviously we're giving, we're contributing to the defense of Ukraine, and we've pledged to commit to the defense of Ukraine for as long as it could possibly take. And uh, I, I think people have the right to wonder whether where, where this leads and whether this is, in fact, not making the people of the U.S. any safer by sliding ever so closer to an actual war with Russia. Yeah, I mean, Biden said something along the lines of dictators only understand one word, and it's no, no, no. I don't know. I, I, it doesn't really inspire a lot of confidence about what's happening at the negotiating table if you yes. think that your yes. opponent has the, the vocabulary that's more limited than a household parrot. Um, I, I, I remember a time back during the Bush the end of the Bush years, you know, the beginning of the Obama years, where there was all of this celebration among liberals, but suddenly we had someone who didn't have to kind of vilify their enemy to talk in these like basic terms about, I won't negotiate with terrorists and I'm not going to do diplomacy. And how there was like this, mm -hmm. this um, valorization of uh, intransigence and, and a rejection of diplomacy and intellectualism. And we thought liberals used to celebrate the idea that we're going to return to to normal, someone who had geopolitical savvy and understood how to use it for the benefit of America at the negotiating table. And this kind of rhetoric that basically, you know, it, it casts your enemy in an almost kind of animalistic light. Like, certainly there are people and dictators in the world who behave in ways that deserve that kind of condemnation. But I'm very wary of the historical trend of painting one's enemy as almost animal-like and beneath notice as a way to justify not negotiating, as a way to justify any number of like horrors inflicted upon their people. And it gives me pause. I'm, it, it, does not, it does not assure me to hear him talking in this I think you're very way. right to bring up um, the negotiating table and also the, the negotiating with terrorists analogy, which, by the way, is generally not true. Uh, uh, we do negotiate with terrorists. Yeah, we just got Brittany Griner back. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the U.S. negotiates with, unless you're defining terrorists to be like yeah. so narrowly as like just ISIS. Now, I don't think we do any negotiating with ISIS, but we've negotiated, and we've negotiated with all sorts of groups who were hostile to us in one context and then not hostile in another or changed over time. We've armed rebel groups that we were later at odds with. I, that was true of Al-Qaeda at one point. Um, and, and also, we can't, uh, we can't, you know, account for how all of the money and support and weapons we've given and uh, whose hands they end up in. Uh, I mean, we, you know, we were, I think we were negotiating somewhat in the pullout of Afghanistan, right? Uh, it, there's uh, little negotiations, little trade-offs are characteristic of all government policy. It's all, actually how, how all humans act. No one actually follows through and I will never negotiate with anyone kind of standpoint. That's not how people, we all, we all negotiate our petty little grievances and disputes all the time. Uh, so does Joe, Joe Biden actually think that or is that just rhetoric? I'm, I'm not sure it's helpful either way. If he really thinks that no is the only word Vladimir Putin understands, then we're really in for a long haul here, aren't we? Hopefully, we at least believe that Vladimir Putin would understand the words, okay, how about an independent for uh, an arrangement for an independent Donbas or a vote from Donbas that might be Russian, depending on the vote, and a security agreement for the rest of Ukraine. We're hoping he understands those words. Let's find out. <laughs> Let's could, ask him. Putin could probably <laughs> say that in three, four different languages. <laughs> Meanwhile, Biden's up there reading off of his teleprompter. Uh, well, at MSNBC, Atlantic writer Tom Nichols had this to say about Republicans opposed to unlimited aid to Ukraine. Ron DeSantis and other Republicans don't want this next election, or really anything, to be about foreign policy. It's their Achilles heel. They don't know anything about it. They don't care. The base they have to deal with um, is actively hostile to any discussion of foreign policy, partly, um, you know, as 
it, it is that anti-Zelensky, anti-Biden reflex, um, but partly because the Republicans have abandoned the the internationalist, the kind of muscular internationalism that Reagan brought to the end of the Cold War um, and adopted a kind of sour, know-nothingism uh, about foreign policy. And those are the primary voters. And this is, I think, why you're seeing the House being the, the House members somewhat difficult, uh, more difficult than the Senate members, because that's the very core of the GOP base. That, those are the primary voters that they have to get past. And those voters don't want to hear anything about foreign policy or NATO or Ukraine or Zelensky because they watch a lot of TV and they don't know much more else. I mean, his analysis of those voters is substantially correct, uh, but his implication there is that that's a bad thing, which I disagree with completely. Um, and, and, and I will also say I don't think um, foreign policy is, is necessarily the first item on most, on most Americans' plate in general. They have a lot of other concerns. So I, I don't think uh, the elections have not kind of hinged on foreign policy in, in a why. I mean, going back to the Bush years, really. And I don't think that's likely to change, and that's fine. So it, it might also it might be true that foreign policy is not really what a DeSantis is talking about or a Trump talking about when they're running. Uh, but that said, yes, the Republican voters have a lot of skepticism of this endless commitment. I suspect that a lot of Dem uh, unheard from Democratic voters actually do as well. Uh, not the MSNBC audience or the CNN audience, but that's not very many people. There are a lot more people out there um, who, uh, who, have a, who have a different idea about this. But um, yeah, I think there are a lot of folks who are not beneficiaries of America's economy right now, mm -hmm. who are very frustrated by the, the free-flowing monetary tap that is on with respect to Ukraine but not with any with respect to any number of domestic issues. And I think particularly among communities that have been begging for support for a long time and been told there's not enough money, you're undeserving, et cetera, you're, you might start to see even more of a shift than we started to see in the Trump years of those groups either toward the Republican Party or just abstaining from elections altogether. Because people have not forgotten that Joe Biden ran promising that if you get me Georgia, I'm going to get you $2,000 checks. I'm going to get you student debt cancellation. I'm going to get your George, George Floyd Justices and Policing Act. I'm going to undo Trump-era immigration policies. And none of that happened. None of it. At the same time that there was all this fetching and back and forth over Build Back Better, and we don't have the money for this, and we're going to slash the environmental programs, and we're going to slash this, that, and the other, and we're going to take what could have been a, you know, what did Bernie say he wanted to be, like a, a seven, six, seven, you know, trillion dollar bill down to it, you know, two. Okay, now here we are. And there seems to be no, how are we going to pay for it? What is it going to cost? Any of those considerations? Is it going to be inflationary? None of that is a discussion when it goes to a blank check. I saw someone point out that the amount that's already been sent to Ukraine is more than what Puerto Rico was begging for to rehabilitate after the hurricanes. But the money is not there for Puerto Rico and American citizens in Puerto Rico, but it is there for Ukraine. And I saw someone else making the case that we're sending this money to support um, public health infrastructure in Ukraine, when people in the United States of America yeah. are going without insurance or not taking advantage of the sure insurance they have because the co-pays are too high. Which are things that were said that, that voters felt that way about Iraq and Afghanistan as well. That some of those same things were said, we're, re we're rebuilding Iraq, but not our own country. Right. And that was something that, uh, you know, that was a war that was 
kind of launched by Republicans. So it initially had a lot of, I mean, it had bipartisan support, but it, the Republican support held on a little bit longer. But it collapsed among, among Republican voters before it did among Republican political leaders. They didn't understand that they had kind of brute force support for this war, and it didn't hold up. Precisely because primary voters, or just voters in general, were asking those questions yeah. about why are resources going there, but not to us. And that, that sunk the party for, yeah. a, for years. And, and something, yeah. could something like that could happen. I, I mean, I know Joe Biden is coming off a big win, and he has a lot of good political instincts otherwise. But got to be careful. Something like that could happen to the Democrats as well. It absolutely could. And to be clear, it's not a zero-sum game. I mean, the, the, what we are learning from this is that America can spend when it wants to spend, not that we have to take that military money and, like, spend it on these other things like there's one bolus. The, the U.S. economy doesn't work like a household economy. We have fiat currency. We can print money. And, and if you invest it in— where you know, and not you could. There are there are ways that it can be inflationary, and ways that it can't be inflationary. But there are all of the the sectors that are driving inflation: education, uh, food, healthcare. These are places where people need help, and where we could be making investments that bring down the high costs. Right? The whole inflation is prices going up. If we had an interest in bringing down inflation and focusing on those sectors, we could be using our resources to do that. We obviously have the resources. There obviously is no impediment. And we know that now more clearly than ever because we're witnessing what's happening in Ukraine. And if we're spending, if, if we believe, which maybe you don't, some people do, that, that runaway spending is having an inflationary impact, that is true of runaway spending on the military as well. Yeah. Yeah. You can't, you can't have it's, it both It's ways. not just domestic, it's spending. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's what economists of my thinking think. So it's true of military spending as well. Let's not rule that out. Uh, that does it for us for today. But tomorrow on Rising, we're already preparing a very special Thursday show for you. The whole team is hard at work. You won't want to miss that, I promise. <laughs> Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you soon. Bye-bye.